we're standing in front of some red iron gates, uh, huge gates, large gates, and every every rod and, and strut and strand is covered in ribbons and mementos and uh, flowers and little handwritten notes, and they're all sort of fluttering gently in the breeze on this uh, summery, midsummer summer day. Uh, and they're all mementos either to uh, the outcast dead of years gone by uh, or to more recent sex workers. Can you read what it says up here? Um, up there it says there's a, there's a round plaque that says Crossbones Graveyard. In medieval times this was an unconsecrated graveyard for prostitutes or Winchester geese. By the 18th century, it had become a pauper's burial ground, which closed in 1853. Here, local people have created a memorial shrine, the outcast dead R.I.P. Before the Roman kings arrive, or out to seven strokes, the rolling English drunk can make the rolling English road. Watling Street has always been there. It was one of the first lines on the map, running from the White Cliffs of Dover through London and the Midlands into North Wales, a road simultaneously mundane and extraordinary, shaping the modern world and ancient history alike. We are going to take a journey along Watling Street, looking for the island's true face. John Higgs, author of Watling Street, and a man with an uncanny ability to uncover little-known corners of history and culture and make surprising connections between them. John will be our guide in this four-part series. Watling Street is 450 miles in length and quite hilly in places, so make sure you've packed your waterproofs, stout walking boots and a spare pair of socks. Episode 2, London's Invisibles. The homeless in the subways and the dead-end kids from Old Kent Road to Bermondsey. In the skull-faced queers and junkies and the tart who tested positive for HIV. The shining eyes of our goddess of mercy. In the haggard face of John Crow who watches from his high tower in Trinity. As in the single mother who lives across the road at number 23. The checkout girl in Superdrug, whose name tag says her name is Charity. And in every human face that is pocked and scarred by what we call reality. By the the grace of Our Lady Mary Overy, let them see the shining eyes of our Goddess of Mercy. In this episode, we'll follow Watling Street to London to seek out some of the country's forgotten relics and hidden people. We'll meet author Ian Sinclair to discuss the fate of the London Stone, the city's most myth-laden monument. And John talks to Lord Victor Adebowali, chief executive of the social care enterprise Turning Point, helping those most vulnerable and invisible in the city. But first we'll explore the history of Crossbones, a former burial site for outcasts and medieval sex workers. In 2017, comedian Miranda Kane performed a one-woman show all about Crossbones. A former sex worker herself, Miranda was keen to tell the story of the prostitutes from a female perspective. Playwright John Constable has also written three plays about crossbones, dictated to him by a giant goose, more of which later. But first, let's meet Miranda Kane. 
the only place that I can find in the world that, that keeps sex workers at the forefront and that memorialises them and that keeps their stories. Like, I've tried to find ones in Japan. You would have thought there'd be a temple in Japan, maybe, or, you know, somewhere that remembers geishas or, or, or concubines, something somewhere around the world. But Crossbones, every time I've looked, is the one that comes up again and again and again as being the prostitute's graveyard, the only place where they do memorialise the outcast dead. So it is, and it is really important to us. And you, when you see it and you've seen, like, the ribbons and the names, and it's, it's actual people that are written on those ribbons. And they're not, and, they're, and those bodies are still there, you know? They haven't been moved. Like, 150 of them got moved. But otherwise, they're still there, they're still under that ground, and they're still being left and forgotten and abandoned. So it is the place for, for I think, for, for pilgrimage, and like you say, you know, for remembrance. Mm. It's, it's kind of reassuring to know that these things that uh, have gone from us haven't really gone from us and they will sort of sort of uh, appear again if, if only we remember to look. Yeah, yeah, and that's exactly what Crossbones did. It was forgotten for years and years, for like 150 years, and then Transport for London when they were building the Jubilee extension line, and then it's like, oh, we think there might be a graveyard here, so we're going to have to excavate it, and the Museum of London did, and sure enough, you know, there it was. But I think if it hadn't been for John Constable and his work, then it wouldn't have been remembered as the the graveyard for the people who were there. It wouldn't be remembered as the prostitutes' graveyard. It wouldn't be remembered as the single women's churchyard. Uh, my name's Cathy, and I'm a volunteer warden through Bankside Open Spaces Trust, and I warden in Crossbones Memorial Garden. And I just love the history of this area. And this is so entrenched in the history of Borough um, that it's, it's a unique site. Can I ask who John Constable is? John Constable is the guy who discovered um, that this was the actual site of, of the burial ground. Because it wasn't consecrated ground and the prostitutes were outcasts, it was never actually appeared on maps as like any other church graveyard would. And John um, had a vision um, <laughs> and um, was led to this place by the goose. So he is very instrumental in keeping this sort of pagan tradition and the outcast bit going. Hmm. Not entirely sure she's a believer. What's Miranda's take on John Constable? From what I know, when Museum of London were doing their excavation, he had a vision from the goose, who, as, as his alter ego, John Crow, and the goose came to him, and he went off on this kind of fugue state and wandered around the streets of Southwark and found this um, sort of excavation being taken place. And it was the goose that said to him, this is where... Um, this is where the Winchester geese are buried. And he looked into what the goose, got the geese were, and the, the Winchester geese are what they used to call the prostitutes who worked at the brothels, um, and because they were owned by the Bishop of Winchester. And so from that, he wrote his mystery plays and, um, and started working towards... Um, preserving it as the site we know now. And whether you take it as fact or fiction, like, it, it's obviously a bit of a pinch of salt. No one's saying there's definitely this goose that flies around, obviously. But to me, it's just part of the mythology of it. It's part of the, the female spirit, this wild creature and this wild sexuality that can be personified as this goose that flies into men's brains and goes, look, come here, look at this. 
John is now at the stage where he can talk honestly about this vision, the, 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 the events that led to him waking up one morning with an almost complete uh, full-length pose poem uh, from the point of view of a medieval sex worker. Uh, and he couldn't really talk about it being a, an acid um, vision <coughs> when he was trying to get the Bishop of Southwark, when he was trying to get you know, the, the Shakespeare's Globe, when he was trying to get all these people together uh, to put on the Southwark Mysteries. Um, which they did. Now that the place is open, now that the place sort of starting to feel like it's secure, he can actually unload and, and, and be honest about, about the full things. And, you know, you, as he says, you judge things by their fruit. You know, you wouldn't um, recommend uh, vast amounts of LSD as being sort of the best way to make life-changing life decisions in the way that he did on that particular night. <laughs> but in this instance, you know, it's just done a lot of good. It's just done a lot of good. Oh, with a hey-ho, a jolly jack crow and his merry, merry band of outlaws of Never stumble when he trips Macown or the apocalypse And some go, oh ho, who be this John Crow? This nobody rootless shaman, oh Kicking loose heels as the rank weeds grow Wild in our southern haven and then the crow on the gargoyle. Ah, ah, ah. And he draw on a map of infinity where God rejoices more in the brazen whore than in the wife in her pinch-faced I'm John Constable, uh, a playwright, poet, uh, social activist and uh, self-styled urban shaman of crossbones. We're at Crossbones, Crossbones Graveyard or Burial Ground. This was a, a pauper's burial ground. Uh, certainly functioned in the 17th, 18th and early 19th century when this was one of the poorest parts of London, an area known as the Mint, among other things. Uh, and this was their graveyard, so it was very much for people who couldn't afford a burial. But even in, in those days, it was linked in local legend with the single women's churchyard mentioned by John Stowe in 1598. Single women being one of a number of euphemisms for sex workers uh, in medieval and post-medieval times. Another euphemism was Winchester geese. And this was because um, the brothels or the stews of Bankside, of the liberty of the clink, uh, were licensed by the Bishop of Winchester and the women who worked in them were the, the trade was effectively regulated by the bishop so there were many laws called the ordinances touching the governance of the stew holders in Southwark and this regulated the world's oldest profession effectively the church certainly benefited from it and uh, the image of some of those bishops as kind of grand pimps uh, is not entirely unjustified. But I always like to say a word or two in their defence as well, because they did provide a measure of protection for, for the women who worked in, 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 the, um, in the stews. Particularly, there were laws against trafficking, so that the women of the common brothel shall have free licence and liberty to come and go as they please, without interruption of the stew holder, the stew holder being the brothel keeper. Uh, in fact, the women were encouraged to rent their own rooms and work freelance, effectively. That, but the property itself was tended to be owned by the church, by the Bishop of Winchester. So all that's well and good. And indeed, um, when Cromwell closed down the Liberty of the Clink, this area on the South Bank near London Bridge, 
He closed it down, of course, as, as a den of iniquity with all its bear pits and, and brothels and theatres, indeed. Uh, but as we know, um, however well-intentioned, these have unintended effects, and street prostitution continued in Red Cross Way, certainly into the 20th century, the difference being it was completely unprotected and therefore that much more exploitative. But the liberty of the clink lasted from 1107, when the bishop was granted the land, till 1647, when Cromwell effectively finished it off. It was already in decline. And the Liberty was this area, as I say, on the south bank, very close to London Bridge, but facing straight across to the city of London, where all the power and the money was. And over here was definitely the pleasure quarter. And it's perhaps no exaggeration to say that for at least five centuries, Southwark, or the, as it was in those days, it was just the, what we now call Borough and Bankside, Southwark was effectively the whore of London. It was uh, used in not only... Uh, for sexual pleasure, but uh, it's where they put five of the major prisons, hospitals, foul trades like leatherworking, the bear pits, the theatre. So everything really that they preferred not to see within the city walls, but perhaps found it quite um, convenient to have it only a, a short ferry ride away. For tonight in hell they are tolling the bell for the whore that lay at the tabard. And well we know how the carrion crow doth feast in a crossbones graveyard. The sex workers uh, were not allowed to be buried in the consecrated ground of, of St Mary's Ovary. Is that, that correct? This is, this is certainly the, uh, the anecdotal history. There, there's no way of absolutely proving this. It's, but yes, that, that is what John Stowe reports, that unless they were reconciled from their sin, sinful life, uh, they were buried in an unconsecrated ground. So you have St. Saviour's burying ground around what is now the cathedral, and then you would have these sort of overspill burial grounds. And the most notorious of them was Crossbones, far from the parish church and became known as the single women's churchyard. And of course, the name itself uh, says so much about the status of women in those times. To be a single woman was, was a, pretty much a synonym, a synonym for being a sex worker. So uh, because without marriage, women had very little or no status. So how, how many people would have been buried in this ground? The Museum of London did an excavation in the 1990s. They removed 148 skeletons, and in their report they estimated that was 1% of the total burials. So I, I worked that out as around 15,000 burials here, of which, again, they estimate more than half of those are children because obviously child poverty, uh, poverty and child mortality in this area was extraordinarily high. And most of the skeletons show signs of things like rickets associated with bad diet and generally poor health. So yes, 15,000 of the dead of crossbones. Now, we don't know how many were left because in the 1990s, they built the Jubilee Line extension here, uh, right next door. In fact, it destroyed the eastern part of the graveyard and we don't know exactly how many skeletons were removed apart from the 148 we do know there was that perhaps even a thousand more were removed in a way that was not entirely 
respectful and perhaps not even legal. We've decided to let that one go because you can't really, the whole lesson of crossbones is you can't undo the past. What you can do is use the past to um, stimulate, to provoke us into doing better. And that's very much our, the objective at Crossbones, not to too much dig up the wounds of the past, or at least to look at them, to acknowledge them, and then to use them, hopefully in some kind of act of transformation. So what about John's goose and this vision? Well, in 1996, John had been researching his local neighbourhood and had a title of a new play, The Southwark Mysteries, but no clear theme. So on the 23rd of November that year, he decided to push the boat out with some experimental writing. I spent the day preparing, bathing and and chanting and lighting candles and then took a what I've since described as an heroic dose of LSD lysergic acid diethylamide 25 he began writing as John Crow his literary persona then the goose arrived the spirit of a medieval sex worker she delivered her story entirely in verse John had never written in verse before and verse that seemed to move very freely between archaic forms and contemporary forms and it would do it sometimes even in the same verse which uh, she was no respecter of um, formal tradition and so there are parts of the, the first poem the book of the goose which was the poem that was written that night that night parts of it are echoes of Chaucer and older poets uh, and equally parts of it are probably echoes of Tricky and uh, who I think I was probably playing at at least some of the night <laughs> Certainly my experience was when I woke up the next morning, I'd written this huge poem. I'd filled a notebook with poetry. And I, I, I was quite um, alarmed by it, I'd say, my initial reaction. Firstly, I thought, maybe you've pushed the boat out and you're not going to get back this time. You know, it did feel like I might have just gone completely mad. When I started listening to The Goose, what, what, what did... What do you want? What do they want, the outcast dead? And, and the strongest sense I got was they want to be remembered. Still tripping, John found himself directed by the goose out into the streets to a building site. Only later did he discover it was the location of the former burial ground for which he would become keeper. Over the next few years, the Southwark Mysteries became fully formed as a three-part play and were performed on the 23rd of April 2000 at Shakespeare's Globe. The final act was delivered in Southwark Cathedral. From then on, John became official custodian of Crossbones. It is now a memorial garden. I, I spend half my life these days, you know, now we've won the first battle. There isn't going to be a tower block here, but now the world and his wife has their pet idea of what it might be, including a cycle superhighway coming through here. That's the council's latest idea that they've just come up with. And this happens every year or so, just to keep me on my toes.
My name's Michelle Watson and I've been working with John Crow since before 2000 actually. I was um, doing a play called The Warp, um, working with Ken Campbell, Daisy Campbell and John Crow rocked up with his play to do a reading and yeah, I was blown away by it. And being a lady of Southwark, I wanted in. And what are you going to do for us now? What are we going to do now, John? We're going to do The Goose. Let's sing the song of The Goose. So... Uh, these are her opening words to me. They weren't the very first words I wrote down, but when I... Because I did polish the poem a little, and when I polished it, this is how it opens. I was born a goose of Southwark by the grace of Mary Overy Whose bishop gives me licence to sin within the liberty In Bankside stews and taverns you can hear me on quite daintily As I unlock the hidden door, unveil the secret history I will dunk you in the river and then reveal my mystery (laughs) (laughs) And Miranda, you've you've obviously done a one-woman show on the theme of crossbones Yes And you mentioned that you had some quiz or questions for I us? I do, I do. Uh, so one of the things that I discovered in my journeys was that the Bishop of Winchester, he made 39 rules for the for the stews, for the brothels and for the women that worked in them. Um, and because they were rules and regulations, so what it meant was um, he was not only getting money from licences, because they had to pay him to work there, obviously, from rents, um, he could also get money from making these um, big rules and regulations, and he could find them an extortionate amount and that you might say is a bit draconian isn't it because if you're going to find a prostitute how are they going to pay off the money they have to have more sex yeah so you're kind of trapping them into having sex work and and into being prostitutes and a lot of people well that's very draconian isn't it I'm so glad we don't do that today and we do we still make sure that we heavily find sex workers if they're being caught out of bounds then they're really heavily fined and that means they are therefore trapped into doing even more sex to pay off the fines to the government so I have got a little game okay Okay, so this is my little game called Medieval or Modern, Medieval or Modern. What's it going to be, 2017 or 1217? Medieval or Modern, Medieval or Modern. Can you fuck a nun? No, let's go. Is that right? <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to give you one of the rules and you're going to have to tell me whether it's from 1217 or 2017. Okay, <clears throat> I'll start off easy for you. I will start off easy. Uh, So, number one, the management may not knowingly employ a nun. That's a tough one. That's a tough one. I would would say that's medieval. I'd say medieval too. Correct, correct. I told you you it was going to start easy for you. Uh, However, the full rule is the management may not knowingly employ a nun without the bishop's permission. So, obviously, fucking a nun is a hard habit to break. Uh, Number two, (laughs) uh, prostitutes may not work together. So, you cannot have two prostitutes working together. Do you think that's medieval or modern? Modern. Modern? Modern. Modern. Correct, it is modern. Uh, The full rule is, in 2017, you cannot have two sex workers under one roof. It's two women having sex under one roof. But the full rule states that you cannot have two women under one roof having sex whether money has exchanged hands or not. Does that mean that's outlawing brothels? Yes, 
It's outlawing brothels and it's outlawing two women having sex whether money has exchanged hands or not. Which is... You can't pay for a threesome. You can't pay for a threesome and you basically can't stay in butlins or hotels (laughs) or halls of residence. (laughs) <laughs> or have two flatmates. Yeah. Or, or anywhere come spring. <laughs> or anywhere come spring. Or even half the houses in, in Brighton. So, Brighton. sorry about that. Um, so, yeah, so it, that's basically the rule that does outlaw brothels. And that's one of the rules that when we say we want decriminalisation, we're just trying to say we want to have it so that two women can work together under one roof without fear of persecution or prosecution. Yeah. Number three, a woman may not humiliate a man nor sit upon his face. Oh. Um, medieval. 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 That is from the 2017 UK porn laws. Is there a law on the flip side of that, that a man may not humiliate a woman? No. no. Oh, no, this so is just women. Right. Yeah, this is just women. Uh, which brings me on to... Oh, I'll tell you all about that one, don't worry. Uh, so the next one, you may not curse during sex. You cannot curse during sex. Is that medieval or modern? It has to be medieval. Medieval? Medieval. That's yeah. a trick question. It's both. Way. Uh, in the medieval ages, in 1217, no brothel keeper could allow cursing or blasphemy on his premises, which is a bit of a shame, because that's how you know it's going well. Uh, and in the UK porn laws, you cannot depict sex acts, including depictions of verbal abuse so it's it's yeah so it's just one of those things where for me it's it's this whole sort of seeing history written by men and um seeing even things by, about crossbones written by men and and i'm like let's get a woman's point of view and let's get a sex worker point of view I am Victor Adibawali. I do lots of things, actually, but I do, I'm the chief executive, actually, and for the purposes of this broadcast. <laughs> I'm a member of the House of Lords, uh, a crossbench peer. And what uh, brought you into the, the, the field of homelessness? Well, I'm not really in the field of homelessness, although I do, I, I am in homelessness in the sense that I care about it, and I have run um, Centrepoint. I ran Centrepoint for six years or thereabouts. Do we have to view housing... Uh more in terms of something that the the state needs to intervene in or is it something the private sector can get right? Uh, Well, the past is always a clue to the future. The the past, the private sector has never got housing for all right. I'm I'm not against the private sector. I have a small flat, I rent it out. Um, I don't have a problem with people being landlords or indeed the private sector. But to rely on it... Uh, is a bit like relying on kindness to provide um, health services for everybody. Nothing wrong with kindness, it's just not equally supplied, (laughs) which is why we have public services in the first place. And if you look at the facts, um, people are happiest in countries where the state intervenes more, to be honest. Um, uh, Ending homelessness is about building more housing. It's about creating cheap, affordable, I'm afraid, social housing that people want to live in. It's actually about going back to the post Uh, post-war settlement when people lived in social housing um, people who worked lived in social housing people and most people who worked did live in social housing you know um, and it was about providing you know the basics it was it was the presumption that people coming back from war actually deserve to live somewhere decent now housing people is seen as a luxury it's seen as something that you 
it's an asset. One of the themes uh, that has come out in this in this trip through London that we're doing at the mm. moment uh, in, is, into, is about invisibility. Mm. It's about things that are eternal, things mm. that are always present. Mm. We stop seeing them. Mm. Uh, and But it's also possible to sort of bring them to light. I'm talking about things like the London Stone as yeah. much as crossbones and things like that. But something like Grenfell has brought homeless issues oh, to light in a way yeah, that never... That's such a good... Um, uh, I, I say this to people when I'm talking about organisations and organisational theory and stuff like this. You know, the future's decided by the things we don't discuss. Mm. <laughs> um, and, the, uh, and part of the trick of the last, certainly since 2008, and before, is to create assist, is to blind people actually, to create a sense in which you don't look, so you don't see, so these things become invisible. Having been to Crossbones and, and looking uh, at, at the, 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 the plight of the, the sex workers over many centuries yeah. and, and things like that, um, it's, it seems that the, the vulner- well, for the vulnerable, um, things like uh, gender, ethnicity, mental health mm. and things like that uh, are major factors in, in dealing with Is that getting better understood, the importance of, of these extra factors? I don't think so. It's a very odd, actually, because it's um, the day after Pride Day, isn't it? Uh, and I'm a huge supporter. I'm kind of black guy, be anti-sexual. <laughs> uh, but I don't know. I, I, get, I have this horrible feeling that class matters, and that you know, in a sense, the upper classes have always been more accepting of um, sexual preference, a whole load of stuff, actually. But actually, the poor. <laughs> And it's not because there's a, some massive intellectual difference. It's that if you provide, if you don't have good basic Maslow's hierarchies, then other things become how can I put it? They be, the, these fictional differences, and a lot of them are fictional, become the reasons to fight for what little there is. Do you know what I mean? So I think you know, it, race, gender, sexual orientation become matters of friction in situations where there's a lack of basic housing, food, decent jobs, you know, access to art, which I think consider to be a critical factor in human growth, Um, then people start to turn on on each other for reasons that are completely bogus. And, And if you read the history of sexuality, you see that it was always the upper classes. And you see, you know, that black people were accepted in the courts of the French, the British, well before they were accepted in the poor dwellings of the, because poverty creates difference, <laughs> you know, at the end of the day. <laughs> so is, are things better understood? Well, yeah, at, at a sort of at an intellectual level. Have the causes and the and we treat you know the law's been changed so it's possible to walk hand in hand through Soho and in Brighton. Try doing that in Burnley. Your sons and daughters of a dark land where comets blow above the roofs and the factories. Take you down to the country 
Um, I'm Ian Sinclair and we're in the Museum of London to take a closer look at the London Stone, which I'm more used to seeing out on Cannon Street, 111 Cannon Street, but it's now being translated into a, a sort of neutralised environment in a perspex box in the Museum of London. And why is it here, not out on the street? Well, it's always, it's always been a bit conflicted in its presentation in London, who it belonged to and where it should be. It's, it's moved several times in its life. And at the moment, there are developments going on in 111 Cannon Street, and so essentially for, for its own safety and preservation and to, to become part of the, the great collection of London. Before, ironically, the London Museum itself moves because it's going to move into Smithfield. Just in this last transitional phrase, the, um, the Great London Stone, which hardly looks like a stone at all. I mean, it's, it's no more than a like whalebone casket or a, a, a swollen box of some kind, a calcified box. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like the standing stone that theoretically it once would have been, an obelisk. But its importance is in the mythology of London. It's such a potent symbol. Was it a stone that summoned the people of London, a sort of Gorset stone for the Druids of London, as Elizabeth Gordon, E.O. Gordon suggested? Um, William Blake was, was fascinated by it as a stone of power and a thing of sacrifice. People have thought it was a, a measuring stone that all of the roads of London uh, from the Roman era a milliarium stone that all the loads spiraled out from. I think it's either thought of as being London's omphalus, it's the, it's the plug on which the energies of London depend, and if it was removed, then London dissolves and falls apart, and it's sat in the city of London, the original settlement. Or it's an, an imposed colonial item, a point of measuring from which the rest of Britain takes its, its distance and its shape. And so in that sense, it's enormously significant. And yet when you see it now, it's, it's just a fragment. It's just a, a tooth of stone. It's just all that's left of something that we're unable to grasp. And the original obelisk would have marked a connection, theoretically, to a, a group of standing stones on the high ground on the west side of the Walbrook roughly where St. Paul's Cathedral is, there would have been a circle and there would have been the one stone outside, the heel stone, on the eastern side of uh, the Warbrook on, a, on another eminence and this would have been it and it would have stood there as something quite visually significant. And then gradually time and history wore away at it, chipped away at it till it's, all that's left is this single diseased molar in a perspex box um, filled with animus, filled with presence and, and a great thing to stare at and meditate on but, but completely without its topographical, cartographical significance. And John, why does it feature in Watling Street? Why, why, why am I here with, with you and Ian? The obvious reason is because the, the route of Watling Street once uh, the route had changed across the Thames over London Bridge ran up uh, Cannon Street. That, that, that goes straight into what is now still called Watling Street. So it was directly on the route. Um, but the, there's a, a thing we keep coming across on our journey, as, especially, especially in London, the notion that things that are always there essentially become invisible, things that are, are eternally present, uh, we just do not notice. And when I first saw this in 111 Cannon Street, 
Uh, it was sort of tucked away under this grill, and everyone just walks past it, and nobody sees it. It's very, it's very similar to the um, uh, the sex workers we were talking about at Crossbones. Uh, they were they were the forgotten, the, the the unknown sort of people. And just as Crossbones has helped all those hidden people uh, to be remembered, to sort of bring them back into the light, seeing the London Stone here. Um, in the Museum of London on its fancy plinth and its little box with its, its thing. It feels that that's something else that's been eternally present, that's been forgotten, that's been ignored, but which is finally sort of coming back into the light. What is... Um, what I've, I find interesting is it's now tweeting. They've, they've made it tweet. It's at, at the London, London Stone. And if you look at the tweets of the stone... It says things like, I'm the centre of London. Everything revolves around me. Not literally, you understand. I mean, you'd all get terribly dizzy. It's got this sort of... They've given it this sort of faux chummy voice as if it's to sell sort of smoothie drinks or, or something <laughs> like that, which I think is a bit of an insult. <laughs> I, I, it's, it's dignified silence. One thing I like about this is they've carved in the bottom of the plinth that it's on uh, the phrase, so long as the stone of Brutus is safe, so long will London flourish. And... You don't hear a great deal about the sort of founding myth of London. I don't think I'd, I heard until I'd left London uh, about, about over 15 years ago the story of London being founded by Brutus of Troy and his adventures, uh, the fighting giants and all, all these sort of things. It's like our own personal founding myths have been discarded for um, biblical myths, which are really the myths of, a, of, a, of another country. The, the stone is a physical link to that myth it's a reason that I was standing here reading about the stone of Brutus stronger than the myths the myths come in as political spin at various times and periods Um, sanctioned monks or whoever will come up with a story that gives you a founding myth that flatters their own version so you get Brutus New Troy you know all these ideas and then the Celtic the Celtic London hanging, hanging on to that old idea that this emerges from a, a Welsh Irish mythology um, the head of Bran the giant being buried at Tower Hill supposedly secures London against invasion if this, if this head was ever excavated from Tower Hill London would fall the walls of London would fall and then, then again, this, this now looks like the, the head of the buried giant. It looks more like the head of a buried giant than it does look like the, the tip of an obelisk. Frederick Alfred Croft, inspector age 31, saved a lunatic woman from suicide at Woolwich Arsenal Station, but was himself run over by the train. January the 11th. 1878. So John and I are standing in front of a wall full of um, such memorials as these put here in tile from the uh, late 19th, early 20th century. And Ian has brought us here from the museum. Ian, do you want to tell us a little bit about where we are? Yeah, we're in a place called Postman's Park, but we're, we're quite close to the Museum of London. We're between the Museum of London and St Paul's and Watling Street, which we're going to connect up with shortly. And this is one of those strange little oases of London. It's a lot of London wanderers have 
celebrated it. You go, go back some time in the books from the 1930s and so on. You just see this as being a beautiful little accident to stumble across. And this memory wall is, is odd because there's, there's that tradition of walls and um, memorials. Sometimes, you know, in, in all of the London railway stations, essentially you just have the names of the people who died of railwaymen in the first war. But here, every single one of these um, ceramic panels, I think done by Watts, are, are a little narrative. Like, and mostly of, of children or very young people, like Carrie Sisley of Kilburn, aged 10, drowned in attempting to save his brother after he himself had just been rescued. Or Herbert Peter Casley, a stationer's clerk, drowned at Kew in endeavouring to save a man from drowning. Lots of them are about somebody killed in rescuing somebody else from the same situation. It gives you a fairly peculiar sense of London because every single one of them is this story of some tragic death or accident and places that I, I know that mean a lot to me like the River Lee there's George Blencow age 16 when a friend bathing in the Lee cried for help he went to his rescue and was drowned September the 6th 1880 and so on and as it says uh, along the front, these uh, as commemoration of acts of heroic self-sacrifice. And that seems a really sort of Victorian uh, value to, to uh, reward and celebrate, the, the idea of sacrifice. We don't really have things like this now. You can sort of imagine a newspaper like The Sun or The Mirror honouring people who died trying to save other people. It, 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 would seem, it would seem a positive thing that would go down well. We don't, we don't honour self-sacrifice anymore. It's, uh, it's a snapshot of the sort of pre-Thatcher era, no such thing as society sort of mentality of the, uh, the, the individualism that was the height of the late 20th century. So Ian, we're sat having a pint in the old Watling pub. Um, I can see the sign for Watling Street uh, through the window. Uh, we can't get more Watling Street immersed than, uh, than we are now. And so my question for you is, what does Watling Street mean to you? Well, we're on a part of Watling Street that's so phony that it's completely authentic. I mean, I do feel when we're having a pint here that we really are tapping into the original whatever Watling Street was. And if we're in a place where people who worked and built away there, came for their drink, as we're supposed to believe. And you can believe it when we're here. When, we, when we've just walked down from St Paul's, it does have that sense that Watling Street really is something, it means something, it's important. And I, the, the real original Watling Street, as far as I can make out, came in over Westminster Bridge, not over London Bridge. But when you take the London Bridge route and you see this street, you see the name Watling Street there written out, you, you see the dome of St Paul's Cathedral, there's a warmth, you know, there's a buzz to it. Thank you. John, a question I haven't asked you yet, which I know you've explored in the book, but for the sake of our, of our listener. Yes. Um, who or what was Watling? Who or what was Watling? Watling uh, was a Dark Ages tribal chieftain. He or she, what it was called, Washlinger. 
um, and the road ran through their territory. The road was there much before them, obviously. The road has always been there. But because it ran through their territory, they were responsible for it, so it became known as Washlinger Street, street from Stratavia, via, Stratavia uh, paved road in Latin. Um, and Washlinger Strata became Watling Street, Something about that name had a certain magic that all the other names along the entire length of the road didn't have. And it just started to spread. It went as far north as Shropshire. It went as far south as Canterbury. It, you know, it leapt over the Thames. It was just a name that appealed. It was a name that uh, has a certain understated, non-showy sort of Britishness, I think. Um, I think what Washlinger, the, the original name, comes from is the same root as the Welsh when the Anglo-Saxons and the Jutes and all the Germanic people turned up after the Romans had gone. Uh, they called the, the British people who lived here uh, with no attempt at irony. They called them the foreigners, right? Everyone who lived here was the foreigners. Uh, and that became the Welsh. The Welsh are the foreigners. The Welsh, of course, called themselves Cymraeg. Although the word Welsh translates as Cymraeg, one means foreigners and the other means uh, our common friends. Uh, it means us means them. Uh, it's no surprising that in this island we have a bit of a uh, identity problem when us means them. Watling Street Podcast was presented by David Bramwell and John Higgs and was produced by David Bramwell. The book Watling Street is published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson and is available from all good bookshops, especially those within a five-mile radius of the A2 and the A5. Music and the title track Watling Street was by Oddfellows Casino and features on their latest album O Sealand, which is well worth spending your pocket money on. To find out more about John and David, visit drbramwell.com and johnhiggs.com. Further podcast featuring the dynamic duo can be found on Auditorium Podcast at oddpodcast.com. This podcast was funded by Arts Council England. If you liked it, please leave a review for us on iTunes. <laughs> <laughs>